Uh, Father, thank you for this time we've had studying this book of Jonah. Thank you for the way it has revealed to us your patience, your love, and your mercy. This morning, would you, in even a greater way, would you show us your heart of mercy towards sinners? And would you grant to us to have formed within us a heart full of mercy towards sinners just like yours? Would you grant that to us? Through the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Over the last week, I had an opportunity to read a number of children's books on this story of Jonah. And I found a pretty consistent pattern. These children's books do a great job of drawing kids into the narrative. They tell them about Jonah, the prophet who disobeys. Jonah, the prophet who runs, who gets on a boat to nowhere, going as far away from God as possible. Jonah, the prophet that gets chucked into the sea and swallowed by the giant fish. They tell about Jonah's change of heart in the belly of the fish, of how he gets spit back up and learns to obey God by going and preaching to Nineveh. They even tell of Jonah's great success, how everyone repents and worships God. But for some reason, almost none of the books even touch chapter 4 of Jonah. All the books end with Jonas having learned his uh, lesson of obedience and people repenting, and almost nothing of a prophet who lacks the heart of the God who sent him. When in fact, Jonah 4 is the main point of the book. All of this is, in a sense, window dressing to get us to this point, because it's in Jonah 4 that we have revealed for us the motivations that have driven all of the moves of this narrative. Both the heart of the God who sent Jonah, full of mercy, and the heart of Jonah himself that totally lacks it. Jonah 4 shows us that God intends for us to have his heart of mercy. But before we can get there, we have some confrontations with God's heart of mercy that we have to make. It turns out when our hearts that lack mercy are confronted with God's heart that's full of it, It is not a pretty picture. This morning, we'll move through the text in two things, two things that happen when we are confronted with God's heart of mercy, when our own hearts lack it. In one through four, we'll see that God's heart of mercy produces anger, that it actually makes us angry that God is merciful to sinners. And second, We'll see that God's heart of mercy exposes hypocrisy. That God's heart of, mer- heart of mercy acts like a bit of a mirror, and it shows us a pretty ugly reflection. It exposes our hypocrisy. And in all of this, we'll see that God will not be finished with us until he has formed his heart of mercy in each and every one of us. Let's begin in one through four. God's heart of mercy produces anger. I had the privilege of going to a, uh, honor, uh, a gala that honored uh, Dr. Charles Ware this last week, put on by the College of Biblical Studies. It was incredibly encouraging. I feel like I have discovered a jewel of the kingdom that everyone else has known about for a long time and I'm just catching up on. Uh, Dr. Ware has had a huge impact on the city of Indianapolis and at the end of his ministry career, as you will, as he's entering a new phase of life, 
it was a good moment to stop and reflect and celebrate and say, this is a, a life well lived for Christ. Now, we, we have that instinct within each of us, right? That when we accomplish something or come to an end of a significant time, the need to commemorate. We have anniversary dinners, graduation parties, memorial plaques we put up on walls. Now, you might think that where chapter three left off, that Jonah might be in a celebratory mood. He had finally got around to obeying God's command for him to go and preach to Nineveh. And then things went better than anyone could have possibly hoped. A day worth of preaching and a whole city repents. It's incredible. So you might think Jonah would be in a celebrating sort of mood. Maybe he would have a prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe a sacrifice to thank God for his success. Maybe he would erect a, a pillar of some sort to memorialize this event. But what do we see in verse 1? Something quite different. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Success, far from making Jonah happy, it makes him incensed. It makes him angry, exceedingly angry, seething with anger. He's so angry that down in verse 3, in the middle of a prayer to God, he actually asks for God to kill him. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, one thing is for certain, Jonah is really, really angry. So angry, he would rather be out of this world than live in a world where this success in ministry happened. Question is, why? What could make someone so very angry at God? Well, the answer is in verse 2. It's God's character of mercy. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is incensed because God is a God of mercy and he knows it. And it turns out he knew it from the beginning. We were let behind the scene to behind the curtain to see what has been happening, driving this whole narrative forward from the very beginning. It turns out that before Jonah got in the boat and ran, he and God were already in a dialogue. That dialogue went something like this. Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them that judgment's coming. And Jonah's saying, no, 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 God. I know what's going to happen if, that, if I do that. They're going to repent and you're going to show mercy to them, God. I won't do that. That running dialogue is finally revealed to us and brings us to a head. Jonah is incensed by the fact that God showed mercy, but he's even more incensed by God's character of mercy. This is who God is, the God who sent him. Now he, in describing God back to himself, he almost word for word quotes from how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Remember that scene? The, the Lord had passed by Moses and then Moses hears the Lord announce himself, describe his name. And this is what he heard. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is it that makes Jonah so angry? Well, it's that he knows the God that sent him, at least partially. And he knows that he is a God full of mercy towards sinners. And that's what sets this powder keg off. Now, notice, even though Jonah is incensed in his anger, God is still showing him incredible amounts of grace and patience. Look at verse 4 at the way God responds to having his own name thrown back at him. Look what he says in verse 4. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Like a loving parent getting down to look their child in the eye in the midst of a temper tantrum to ask them a question to try and cut through the hot anger. Is that really the way you should respond right now? Jonah, are you, are you right to be angry? Now, it's obvious the implication. Jonah is not right to be angry. And yet, I think if we don't take the time to at least try and understand Jonah's motivations, it'll be hard for us to really be confronted with the offense of God's mercy the way we should. You see, Jonah is this angry, and he has some reasons why he should be angry. He's justified in his anger. Remember who the Ninevites were. The Ninevites were one of the most important cities in the Assyrian Empire. The big bad dog on the block in the ancient world at this point. They were colonialists. They were going around adding territory. They were experts in cruelty. They had built a brand on being evil and inflicting pain on their enemies. Everyone knew you don't cross the Assyrians or else. Now, Israel, Jonah's home country, had been on the recipient of punishment from the Assyrians. They had lost land. They had been raided. They had seen pillaging and murdering. It's quite likely that Jonah... Like would have had at least someone close to him, whether it be someone in his family or someone he knew, that felt the bitter taste of the Assyrian steel. Not only this, the Assyrians, they were in a season of recession. For a, a little while, there was a pause in their march toward what seemed like world domination. They had some stuff they had to deal with at home. And so during that time, all the Smaller fish in the pond, they, they got to, to get away with things for a little while. Well, that's right when Jonah had his ministry as a prophet. And Jonah's ministry was one of declaring expansion and renewal, of saying, we will get back the land that we lost to the Assyrians. But everyone knew. It was just a matter of time before the recession would be over, which meant it was just a matter of, a matter of time till big, bad Assyria was able to come and look at all the small fish in the pond, bringing their vengeance with them. Now, Jonah's no dummy. He knows what's coming. And so he is likely thinking there's only one way this ends well, and that's if the Assyrians, the Ninevites, if they get wiped out in a wave of God's judgment. So Jonah's likely a man deeply invested, maybe with personal wounds, personal pain, certainly with a sense of national pride and protection, who wants most of all for this wicked pagan nation not to destroy the land and people he loves. My friends, there, there's much that you can empathize with Jonah on this. So we, we all love 
our families. We, we have a right type of patriotism, a right type of a tie to the place and people we live with. You can understand thinking, really, God? Really, you're going to show mercy to these people, knowing what they're going to do? You can feel the sort of outrage that Jonah has if you take, uh, take this example and move it sh much closer to your, your own heart. So ask yourself, how would you feel if someone that has hurt you greatly, someone who's done something truly awful to you, something truly awful to someone you love, how, how would you feel if you knew that God was about to show an incredible amount of mercy to that person? Isn't there a little part of you that says, that's not right? You can't just shrug your shoulders over what they did, God. What about justice, God? Isn't there any punishment coming for their sin? You saw this play out on a national level. Uh, it wasn't long ago where there was a uh, police shooting in the news. A police officer by the name of Amber Geiger entered the wrong home thinking it was her own and shot and killed the rightful owner of that home, Botham Jean, 26-year-old accountant in his own home in the middle of the night, no provocation. Now, th that man who was killed, he was black. It, it ended up reopening the racial tension wounds in our country. It was, it was horrible. Now, at the end of that trial, after she had been sentenced to 10 years in prison, there was this incredible moment where the brother of the victim, Brant Jean, he came up to the police officer who had killed his brother, and he forgave her. He forgave her. He said, I, I don't want to hold this against you. I wish you didn't have to even go to prison. I'm forgiving you. And he did it explicitly because he's a Christian. Now, that was an incredible moment of forgiveness. But it kicked off a conversation in the society and, uh, online of, is it actually right to show someone mercy like that? When you take into account all the history of pain when it comes to r racial issues in this church, when you look at all the other police shootings, is it right to just say, I forgive you? Shouldn't someone need to pay? Before we answer that question, we have to go a layer deeper. We'll come back to it as we get to the end of the sermon. But before that happens, God's heart of mercy, I hope by now you're feeling how it can begin to make you angry. There's another layer, another layer of discomfort that God's heart of mercy brings to us. And that's as God's heart of mercy exposes our hypocrisy. That's what we see in verses 5 through 11. How God's mercy exposes our hypocrisy. Now, God asked Jonah a question in verse 4. And Jonah does not exactly show a lot of respect for God. Instead of answering his question, he turns on his heel and walks out of the room. Now, I don't know if you've tried that with your boss or your spouse. Usually it doesn't end well. Jonah is poking the bear here. He, he walks away from God in his anger. In verse 5, he went out of the city 
And he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he goes off far enough that he can see the greater Nineveh area. He sets up a booth. It's just a little shack, probably made of sticks and maybe some dried branches he could find. What we know of plants in the area, it likely was not going to be all that much shade, especially considering he is under the hot Middle Eastern sun, but it's better than nothing. And he, he sits under this shack, and it says that he sits to wait and see what would happen to the city. The implication there is he is still holding out hope. Maybe God will see the light. Maybe he will change his mind, and he's going to judge the Ninevites after all, and I'll get a front row seat to the fireworks. Well, that is the setting for God having a series of appointments for Jonah in verses 6 through 8. Now, already in this book, God has done some sovereign appointing. That is, as ruler of this world and everything in it, he has the ability and right to appoint or say certain things should happen and cause them to happen. He appointed the giant storm that engulfed the boat that Jonah was on when he was running away. He appointed the big fish that swallowed him and saved him. Well, now God appoints a plant. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God makes a plant out of nothing, grow up. And just at one night, grow up over Jonah's shack. Now, from the description of how quickly it grows and the shade it provides, it's probably the castor plant, according to most commentaries. Uh, we really don't know for sure. All that matters is it was effective. It blotted out the sun so that Jonah was comfortable, so comfortable that he has gone from being exceedingly mad to exceedingly glad in just a short period of time. It's a bit like an ancient AC unit that gets turned on in the middle of summer. But there's a second appointment. Verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. He sends a worm. The worm gnaws at the root of this supple plant, and the plant, just as quickly as it rises up, it falls down. And to make matters worse, the final appointment really gets Jonah hot. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God sends a furnace blast of Middle Eastern air at Jonah. He allows the hot Middle Eastern sun to beat down on his head until Jonah from his exposure, he, he becomes faint. He has some sunstroke of some sort. Now, there is a reaction that Jonah has that's pretty predictable if you've been following this guy up until now. He's not exactly pleased. And he says, and he asked that he might die for the second time. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Twice in one chapter, he's asked God to kill him. And, and yet again, Yet again, God shows mercy in patience as he probes the heart of his prophet. Look what he says there. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is that the way you should respond, Jonah? And look at how Jonah snaps back at him. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
that's a temper tantrum fit for any five-year-old, anyone that has little kids. That is someone that is so overwhelmed with anger that they are saying things that don't make sense. Now, it's clear Jonah is incensed in this moment, but there's even up to this point, there's a hint that something more is going on. There's a word play in the Hebrew going on. You see, the word for hot and the word for anger are the, the same in Hebrew. They overlap. So you might say that as God made Jonah's head physically hot, he turned Jonah into a hot head. God is using the circumstances of this plant to get Jonah where he wants him, using his exposure to the sun to expose his heart. See, all of this is one big object lesson. One merciful attempt by a God full of mercy to get through to a prophet whose heart utterly lacks it. God lets Jonah in on what's happening in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor and did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God drops the hammer finally. Finally exposes the hypocrisy of Jonah and he does so with this object lesson of the plant. See, the plant is a stand-in for Nineveh, and it, ex it exposes both God's attitude toward Nineveh in contrast to Jonah's attitude to Nineveh. And it does so by way of a, uh, an argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, all of it is building to a question. God asked two questions of Jonah. Now God asks a question of himself. Is God right to show pity to Nineveh? That's really what the whole book of Jonah is about. Is God right to show mercy? Is God right to pity a sinful people? The three steps to this, this uh, argument that God does first, God points out that he created and cared for Nineveh, but Jonah didn't do anything for the plant. Now, Nineveh isn't there by accident. There's no such thing as a city that ended up in a place without the Lord moving people and raising kingdoms up and knocking them down. Nineveh, as wicked and large as it is, it is there, in some sense, by design. Think about the plant, on the other hand. Did Jonah put a seed in the ground? Did Jonah water anything? Did Jonah put any fertilizer down? Did he try and keep the worm at bay? No, Jonah did nothing except benefit from the plant. By contrast, God has done so, so much for this people of Nineveh. They have enjoyed his son. They have drank his rain. They have eaten his food. He has cared for them each and every day that they have lived or they would not be living. How ridiculous is it to care for a plant and not people that God has created and cared for? Second, God counts Nineveh as a significant city, whereas Jonah only on a surface level values the plant. Now, we've been told that Nineveh is a great city multiple times in this book. Now, as on a worldly perspective, you can understand why that's the case. It did have significant influence in the Assyrian Empire. One day it would become the capital. We're told it has 120,000 people in it. 
It's wealthy. It's got a bunch of cattle also. Most importantly, though, God thinks it's important. On the other hand, we have no indication that Jonah cared anything for plants up until he liked the shade from this plant. See, God sees value in this great city, whereas Jonah, he only cares about something that makes his life comfortable. Third, God sees the spiritual confusion of Nineveh. God sees the spiritual confusion of Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't care a bit about the spiritual confusion of the people of Nineveh. See that phrase, after 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Uh, that's a Hebrew way of saying people that are totally helpless. They're totally hapless. Uh, this is not saying they're guiltless. It's saying they don't have a clue that they don't even have a clue. Uh, these are people that are certainly deserving of God's judgment, and yet, at the same time, think of all the things that they have not had the benefit of that Jonah and his country have benefited from. They have not had the lineage of the, the patriarchs and the heritage of being descendants of those great men. They have not had the scriptures written down for them and the Torah read inside their walls. They have not had prophet after prophet sent to them with the very words of God to them in their contemporary situations as Jonah and Israel had. These were a people, yes, that did not know God, but they were a people who had not had anything close to the opportunities that Jonah and the Israelites had had. Now, I think this is especially egregious because Jonah is a prophet. His job is to reveal what God says to people. He was sent specifically to bring a word from God to these people, and yet he does not care at all for the spiritual blindness of this people. This is hypocrisy of the highest order. Jonah, he only loves mercy when it's for him and people he loves, and he doesn't have room in his heart for mercy toward anyone else. God exposes for all to see his prophet here. And the most stinging thing about all this is the way the book ends. You notice the, the last printed thing in this book is a question mark, in English at least. It ends on a question. God asks Jonah, am I not right to show pity to Nineveh? And Jonah never answers. We're not told if Jonah has a come to Jesus moment and realizes his mistake. We're not told if he keeps arguing with God another 10 years or if he stays hardened in his position for the rest of his life. We're not told. We're not told the answer to the question. And by Jonah not answering the question, brothers and sisters, each of us is called to answer it. Is God right to show mercy to Nineveh? Is God right to show mercy to sinners? Is God right to show mercy to someone, even someone that maybe has done something awful to you? The book of Jonah ends on that mic drop question without leaving it resolved, inviting us to provide the answer. Now, I think that as Christians, very often we struggle with this question of God's mercy and its fittingness for at least a couple of reasons. First, I think that we struggle much like Jonah did. Because we think mercy and justice are somehow incompatible. Whether we would 
actually put it down that way on a theological test or not. We functionally kind of act that way. That if God shows mercy, that must mean justice is just wiped off to the side and God just kind of shrugs his shoulders at sin. Now, Jonah should have known better. As Jonah even recounted the very name of God that revealed his merciful character, realize Jonah only recounted half of God's name. If he had thought about the other half of God's name, he would know somehow his mercy and his justice, they're, they're compatible with each other. The second half of Exodus 34, verse 7, the God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If Jonah had been paying close enough attention to his God, he would know he is both a God of justice and mercy. Now, there is a mystery there, though. What, how do those two things go together? How can God show mercy when a whole city here has done such evil? How can he show mercy and yet still be just? Scripture itself tells us that this is, was a mystery in Jonah's day. And yet it's a mystery that has been revealed. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 tells us of this very question and the way God answered it at the cross of Jesus. Romans 3, verse 25 and 26, speaking of Jesus' death on the cross, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. That's God's rightness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, in his patience, he had passed over former sins. See, friends, up to the cross, there was an open question. How can God possibly show mercy to sinners? How does he let kingdom after kingdom rise and fall with wicked kings and cruel, cruel taskmasters? How does he let people live in rebellion to him generation after generation? If he truly is a just God, how can he let them get away with it? Shouldn't someone pay? And then, of course, he answered the question, yes, someone did pay. That someone was Jesus. At the cross, we see, yes, the mercy of God, but we also see the severity of the justice of God. As the holy God that created us all shows us the deadly, serious consequences of sin, the penalty for sin, death, his wrath, an eternity away from his presence, all absorbed in the person of Jesus. So often as Christians, we struggle when other Christians harm us deeply because we forget that even the things they have done to us have been punished at the cross. Realize this also applies to how we think about when non-Christians, people who don't repent of their sin, harm us. That same Jesus that died on the cross in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, he tells us, behold, I am coming soon to bring my recompense with me, to repay each one according to what he has done. The Jesus that died as a sacrifice for sins will come back as judge of all, and brothers and sisters, that means there's not a single sin that goes unaccounted for. Either the sin will be paid for at the cross or the sin will be paid for on the final day of judgment. 
And that releases us from our need to feel like we need to make someone suffer before they are worthy of receiving mercy. We don't need to inflict pain. We don't need to make them feel the punishment because Jesus already did that or Jesus will handle it on the last day. First reason we struggle is because the mercy and justice of God feel like they're incompatible. But there's a second reason. I think every single one of us, like Jonah, we forget just how much mercy we have received. We so quickly forget all the times God is patient and kind and gracious to us. And so we justify having hearts that have no mercy toward other sinners. How much mercy had Jonah received? He's from Israel. He has heard the very words of God not once but multiple times. He has been sent out and he rebelled and yet God gave him another chance. He made sure that Jonah got the ability to obey and even in his half-hearted obedience, God continues to pursue the heart of his prophet. How much mercy has Jonah received? And brothers and sisters, how much mercy have we received? So much more than Jonah. We have heard the very word of God come through the scriptures and how they teach us of the very word of God, Jesus. We have seen all of our sins wiped away at the cross of Calvary. So is there any excuse for us to have a heart, have a heart that lacks mercy when our God has shown us his heart so full of mercy? I think there's many applications we could make. Certainly there's an application here to how we think of ourselves in relation to others in terms of tribalism. You know, there are right affiliations we have, a right pride in our country, maybe a right association with a heritage, a love for neighbor, a love for people that are close to us. And yet if we ever fall into the trap that Jonah did, thinking of those other people that scare us or maybe have harmed us, and we do so without thinking of God's heart of mercy, then we truly are the hypocritical ones, aren't we? I think it certainly applies to personal forgiveness. How many of us have had some deep, painful wound done to us? How difficult is it to extend the mercy we've received from God toward someone else? Ask yourself, friend, if the person that you think of as least deserving of God's mercy, if they were to repent, if they were to become a Christian, would you be able to celebrate now, maybe you're not quite there yet this morning, friend. I know some, some of these wounds are so painful. It, it takes a while to work through them. Maybe you're still angry. Maybe you identify a lot with Jonah's venting at God here. Friend, if so, I, I want you to remember the mercy that Jonah received that you too will receive. God is patient even with us in the midst of our anger and confusion but hear this, friend. While God will be merciful and slow with you, he will not be done with you until you share his heart of mercy. It won't do you any good to hold on to your bitterness. It'll poison you from the inside out. You can't stay there. Come 
to the God full of mercy and let him transform your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you are feeling God doing that very work within you this morning. Maybe even for the first time, you're ready to accept someone's apology. Friend, if so, that is a good, good thing. God is pleased with that. And as you take steps to act out of a heart full of mercy like the God you serve, you will find his grace and love in even greater measure. We saw this so beautifully in the life of Corrie ten Boom, right? She and her family suffered so much at the hands of the Nazis. She watched her father, even her dear sister, waste away and die in the concentration camp. She survived. Somehow or the other, the Lord showed her tremendous mercy. Her heart did not harden. She was able to keep a heart of mercy toward people, even to the ones that harmed her so much. A few years after the war, she was back in Germany, teaching about forgiveness. After the meeting, she saw someone walking forward who she recognized, and her, her heart almost stopped. It was one of the guards in the concentration camp in which her family died. The guard came straight for her, held out his hand with a smile on his face, and said this. He said, oh, I've done so many evil things, but since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God's forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? Feel the outrage? As she wrestled with it, she, she whispered a prayer silently. Said, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into the joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. See, brothers and sisters, God wants us to have his heart of mercy toward the worst of sinners, even the ones that hurt us. But the good news is that our God will meet us Meet us in our hearts that are empty of his mercy and help us. Help us to have those hearts filled with his mercy. I don't know where you are on that journey this morning, friend, but I do know this. God's not done with you till you have his heart of mercy towards sinners. Let's pray.